0: Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joy.
1: And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. The
0: oldest and most durable institution in the African-American community has been the church. Its institutional origin dates back to 1787, when Bishops uh, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones organized the African Methodist Episcopal Church, A-M-E, in Philadelphia. That congregation is fondly referred to as the Mother Church within the religious community. Informally, the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, A-M-E-Z, was founded in New York City by Bishop James Barrett in 1800 and was formally organized in 1821 at the John Street Methodist Church in Bayes, the title of the Freedom Church. Both of these institutions resulted from widespread racial discrimination, bias, and animosities, which existed within those white churches as African worshipers sought to participate in religious services and the administration. As you can see, these churches were founded in the North, where it was legal to do so. That was not the case in the South with free and enslaved Africans who were forced to practice religion under the eyesight of whites. It was illegal for these Africans to build or conduct church services until after the Civil War. Among the first African-American congregations formed in North Carolina after the Civil War were the White Rock Baptist Church in 1866 here in Durham, and of course, the St. Joseph AME Church in 1869. Since its founding, the African-American church has continued to grow. And today, congregations are located in just about every nook and cranny that exists within our community. Some formally organized and others informally constituted. Since its founding, the church has continued to grow and congregations are located everywhere and have served a very laudable purpose within our community. What have been the contributions of the African-American church in this country is the subject of our discussion this evening. And we talk with Reverend Dr. Attorney and Professor Jaya Augustine, the senior pastor at the historic St. Joseph AME Church here in Durham. Dr. Augustine is also the author of a recently published book called to Reconciliation, how the church can model justice, diversity and inclusion, which is published by the Baker Academic Publishing Group. And he is also a professor at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. So Reverend Dr. Attorney Professor Augustine, thank you for joining us uh, this uh, evening for this discussion.
2: Sounds like I owe you lunch for that wide introduction. But thank you so, much. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be with you both. Thank you so so much.
0: All right. Well, you know, this is a uh, intriguing uh, treatise that you that you've prepared, and uh, is being uh, circulated and has been widely praised by a number number of theologians, uh, community uh, activists, uh, and the entire church and legal community. So we, we thank you. For your work uh, in that regard, but can just for our audience uh, who, who don't know you, and they should, uh, since uh, especially those who are anchored here in uh, in Durham, can you kind of talk about your uh, your background? You know, uh, as uh, as a, a minister, as an attorney, civil rights activist, and now author and uh, professor. So Thank just kind of let them know who who you are.
2: Sure. Thank you for that introduction and for the softball. I might add. Um, I am, I am. God has blessed me with some accomplishments, as, as you've noted, but I was formed in and I am a son of the South. Um, uh, you made the distinction earlier in your introductory remarks, noting how uh, the faith groups that we referenced are formed in the North or in the Northeast. Uh, well, I am from so far South down in Louisiana that you go any further deep South, you'd be swimming, right? Um, I am a native of New Orleans. With all of the fanfare and the grandeur that New Orleans offers, it still is, in a deep southern state of Louisiana. Um, Having been born in 1971, uh, just turned 50 last November, I certainly understand uh, the history of what the Deep South offers. Uh, The Civil Rights Movement, quote-unquote, concluded in 1968. Uh, I was born only three years thereafter, with many of the wrongs that were supposedly righted uh, were still wrong. Uh, So I certainly understand the culture of what the South has been. I understand what the great narrative over the last few years of Make America Great Again, what it really implies and what it has sought to do. Uh, And I understand the culture of our country. Uh, Growing up in the South, I was blessed with the opportunity uh, to to go to Howard University as an undergraduate. Uh, From there, I served our country proudly as an Army officer four years on active duty as an infantry lieutenant before returning to New Orleans and attending Tulane University Law School. Um, I clerked for now the retired Uh, First African American to serve as the Chief Justice of the Louisiana Supreme Court, Burnett Joshua Johnson, wonderful human being, did so much in terms of forming me uh, and my interest in civil rights and social justice from a legal aspect, but I also am someone who grew up in the faith community, Uh, and the good Lord called me to preach a liberating gospel of love and equality. Uh, The old saying is that a calling to preach is also a calling to prepare. Uh, So for me, that meant becoming a bivocational minister and that I was called a second time. I was called to theological studies and earned a Master of Divinity degree at United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, I returned to Louisiana, was pastoring. Then I started going back and forth to Durham uh, to do a doctoral program at Duke. The good Lord then blessed me in 2019. I was pastoring a very historic congregation, downtown New Orleans, a church that was founded in 1844. Uh, when you think about the migratory patterns of the Mississippi River, it literally historic St. James A.M.E. Church is the oldest predominantly Black church in the Deep South, and certainly the oldest Black Protestant church in New Orleans. Uh, but the call of a bishop gave a wonderful opportunity to bring restoration and to refocus on social justice here in Durham. You have already lifted up some of the wonderful historic things about St. Joseph A.M.E. Church, and I was delighted, uh, May 4, 2019, to be assigned as the pastor there, so... Um, I am I am rooted in liberation theology. I'm rooted in social justice. Uh, I'm rooted in trying to make America a better place for all people, and I do so through the interdisciplinary lens of a theologian and as a lawyer and law professor.
0: Okay, you 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 authored the book Call to Reconciliation, which is a, a large word uh, with a pretty wide uh, meaning. Uh, what was there specifically about your background? that led you to want to concentrate on this notion of uh, reconciliation and its uh, spiritual uh, and uh, historic origin?
2: So reconciliation is a word that I have lived out in concept without really understanding or being able to articulate what the word actually means. Uh, It is a word that is rooted more so in the theological academy than in the legal academy. Uh, But as a practicing lawyer, as someone who uh, uh, recognize many of the systemic inequalities uh, that result in society because of racial or ethnic disparities and the like, because of socioeconomic disparities. I'm someone that always thought to quote unquote bring people together. I'm someone that saw the law as a great equalizer, as, as a as a means to extend opportunity to others, perhaps where opportunities had not existed. If we take the equal protection clause to mean what it says, all is supposed to mean all equal is supposed to mean equal. So. From a legal perspective, I was working toward reconciliation, not understanding fully what it meant. I've mentioned that a calling to preach is also a calling to prepare. Uh, For me, uh, having been immersed in theological education, coming with the fundamental perspective of a lawyer, a former civil rights litigator who cared about bringing people together, someone who I should say held publicly elected office as a school board member and certainly experienced many of the inequalities in public education up close, uh, uh, um, reconciliation meant trying to bring disparate groups together in common ground. Through the Theological Academy and through my research and writing, obviously, and now publication, I have been able to articulate uh, and to document reconciliation in a threefold context something that stems from the church, but something that really includes all of us, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender. Um, I unpacked excuse me, salvific reconciliation social reconciliation, and then civil reconciliation. So the salvific reconciliation from a Christocentric lens is about how the individual is saved in their relationship with God or reconciled to God through Jesus. If you, if you picture, if our listeners picture the two axes, the vertical axis and the horizontal axis of the cross, uh, salvific reconciliation is the vertical axis, which says that the individual is saved through their relationship with Jesus. Social reconciliation is a close cousin or close derivative thereof. It says that just like we are saved through Jesus, social axis, the the vertical, horizontal axis says we all are equal to one another because of Jesus. A stem of that or direct derivative of that would be civil reconciliation, where, again, if all means all, and we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal, it was no accident that the civil rights movement uh, and the fight for human equality in America was led by ministers and led particularly by the Black church through the lens of prophetic justice, where civil reconciliation directly relates to social reconciliation, and it's a willingness to take it to the streets, to speak truth to power, for the church to live out the prophetic domain, uh, 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 trying to equate people and legal systems. So salvific, social, and civil reconciliations are theological terms that really summarize what my life has always been about through both the lens of a lawyer and a pastor.
0: Uh, look, look, look at, Looking at that, can you kind of give to our audience some explanation of what constitutes the Black church and then what? how does that differ from the white church and then how do they differ from this notion of the church or is there such a thing in existence as the church?
2: Sure. What a wonderful question, and thank you. And and some of the history you have already touched upon, I'm going to try to answer those, not necessarily in the order in which they were asked, but I'm going to to try to do a gumbo to go to my native language of of New Orleans, right, and kind of put some things together in a pot and stir them together. Um, Number one, the word church, as I reference in the book, is used for the first time in the New Testament in the Gospel according to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, uh, in chapter 16, where Jesus says, Um, uh, on this rock, I will build my church. Uh, uh, The rock that Jesus references and the translation of church from the Greek is the ecclesia. It means literally a group or an assembly of people. It it certainly does not mean a brick and mortar structure. So to answer the last question that you raised, what is the church from a general sense? It is a a collective grouping or body of believers. And as we have seen, certainly over the course of the pandemic, that collective grouping may assemble virtually, it may assemble telephonically, it may assemble in any means. It does not even necessarily have to mean a a physical assemblance, but it certainly denotes common beliefs and people coming together for a common cause. When we think about what is the Black church, you gave a wonderful history lesson regarding uh, discrimination that existed at St. George's. Methodist Episcopal Church back in 1787 when Absalom Jones, Richard Allen, and others led worship at 5 o'clock in the morning in Philadelphia. They separated from that body and they formed initially the pre-African society. Uh, Richard Allen then became the, fr- the founder and initially and in, 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 in eventually the first elected bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So a breakaway from the then existing Methodist Episcopal Church to form a body rooted in Methodism, but a body that was also anchored in social justice and liberation theology, where again, all means all, and all inequality is extended to others. I think we have seen a a theological division uh, over the course of history in terms of answering your question, what is the white church? Um, uh, uh, I I don't want to answer the question in the easy fashion to say, well, go look in, there's the complexion, you see black, you see white. I don't, I don't, I don't categorize it that way. I have seen a turn over the course of history and what the word evangelical means and what its social implications, the social context implies. Um, In Frederick Douglass's time, uh, uh, evangelicals were abolitionists. Evangelical Christians were those who would have lived out a moral law, moral consequence to fight to end slavery, to make sure that rights were uh, uh, extended to others and others felt empowered Uh, We've seen the exact opposite of this, as I document throughout the book, we've seen the exact opposite of this, uh, particularly with the post-civil rights uh, uh, movement of Richard Nixon, the the law and order rhetoric with Jerry Falwell, the rise of the religious right and the deliberate courting along wedge issues, the deliberate courting of evangelicals uh, uh, to turn away from the rights to others to really come into a, a framework of denying rights to others. So to answer your question, when I think about what is the quote unquote white church, I think about it over the course of the last 50 years, certainly quarter to 50 years, as a body that has been united around attracting rights, about denying uh, women's reproductive justice, um, about trying to limit uh, the power of the franchise. Uh, it has been very much co-opted by a narrative of Christian nationalism um, uh, it is a body that certainly is different from the from the liberating body, a body focused on liberating love that I typically categorize as the black church. So when we think about rights and how the, the body of Christ has been extended and has been engaged in a political fight for or against extending rights to others, that is how, quite frankly, I, I have categorized over the last 40 to 50 years the white church opposed to the to the black church.
1: You're listening to The Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour with the Reverend Dr. Attorney and Professor of Law, Jay Augustine, who is the senior pastor at the historic St. Joseph AME Church here in Durham, North Carolina. And we've been talking with him about his recently published book, Call to Reconciliation, how the church can model justice, diversity, and inclusion. We're going to have to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back.
3: North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission, to one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website.
1: And we're back. Thank you again for tuning into the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with law professor and also Reverend, doctor and attorney, Jay Augustine who is the senior pastor at St. Joseph's AME Church here in Durham, North Carolina. And Dr. Augustine is has recently published a book which is titled Call to Reconciliation, How the Church Can Model Justice, Diversity and Inclusion. Reverend, um, I'd like to ask you that, I, first of all, thank you so much for providing the um, kind of the foundation and the, the historical backdrop for um, for what you write about in your book. What led you to um, reach the conclusion that, that this particular book was necessary at this particular time, that what you touch upon, uh, the many issues that you touch upon in the book, and and as it provides um, historical uh, framework, you know, these are discussions that we have been having a lot um, that continue to be relevant, but what was it about this moment that caused you to write the book at this time?
2: Such a great question, and thank you so much for asking it. Um, I think when you undertake something like writing a book and and documenting something that you want to exist to perpetuity and make a contribution, you categorize your work as either responsive or reactive uh, or proactive. Uh, I think this book is a a little bit of both. It certainly was motivated for both spaces, uh, and I hope to offer a contribution at the end of the day to both the church and society. And here is particularly why. From a reactive perspective, uh, in looking at the turn that America made uh, uh, toward the latter part of the Obama presidency, um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a former Army officer, so there is a certain amount of reverence and respect I have for governmental institutions, for the Capitol, for the presidency, for certain institutions. And I think about a sitting member of Congress calling the president of the United States out in the middle of a State of the Union address. You lied. I just think about the level of disrespect that that was there but I think also about the social fabric that motivated that level of respect. I understand that congressman was able to raise billions of dollars in the wake of that incident. uh, There was a certain demographic that was emboldened by that. Um, Others were speaking to that same demographic, and there was a a narrative that came about that, uh, to proverbially paraphrase, brought us to our uh, darker days in a field away from our better angels. And that narrative of of racial animus, of, of rank and enmity, Uh, was was politically captioned as Make America Great Again. So in terms of all I saw, the vilification of Muslims, the vilification of our Mexican-American brothers and sisters, or Mexicans for that matter, Mexican nationals and immigrants and migrants, um, uh, I really had a problem with the direction in which America was going. So I wanted to write something again. I'm somebody foundational who wants to bring people together. I wanted to make a contribution from a reactive perspective that could say we can do a lot better than this. From a, from a proactive position, as someone who is an interdisciplinary scholar, as someone who cares deeply about the institution of the church, but as someone who also cares about how the social fabric uh, is shaped based on the law, I wanted to offer a book that would offer something—I wanted to write a book, rather, that would offer something for the church as an institution, but for society at large, that in summary would say that which unites us is far greater than anything that could divide us. So in my native language of gumbo, uh being from New Orleans, the book begins with an analogy about gumbo. Uh, uh, as I think about a pot of gumbo or a bowl of gumbo, you can look down and see the shrimp, you can see the sausage, you can see the chicken or the hen, depending upon your palate or how you like the consistency. But those things maintain that individual autonomy while coming together to create something that's very, very special in community. For me, that not only is what the church is supposed to be, but that really is society at large. And I want to distinguish the gumbo analogy of now uh, from the from the metaphor of the melting pot that probably uh, we grew up on. And that melting pot for me speaks to a certain level of assimilation. It speaks to a certain level of melting, of giving up something that is authentic to you in order to fit in. And in this day and age where where Zoom etiquette is usually what are your pronouns, right? Who are you? How do you self-identify? We affirm who you are, we affirm the space you're in. I wanted to offer something that was more gumbo-like, something that's more affirming to the individual while celebrating the collective efforts that we all make when we come together and lifting up diversity and inclusion as something that should be celebrated rather than the wedge issues I saw uh, being politicized in America. So Call to Reconciliation, again, is written from both the, the reactive and the proactive positions Very reflective of the times in which we were living at the time I began research, and it was published February eighth of this year. Uh, uh, The animus has only gotten worse. I believe it will get better, but I I don't think we're there yet. So I think the book is responsive to the time, and I thank you very much for the question.
1: And and so you know the um, you know responsive and also proactive, and so this call for reconciliation, you know it. It focuses on the the proactive aspect of what it is that the message that you're communicating. And so can you share with us um, this the origin of the concept of reconciliation? Where, where does this uh, term come from? What does it mean um, and how do you call for it in
2: your in your book? Sure, absolutely. Um, so the term emanates from the Bible. It is it is one of the words that that, that in society that is popularly used. Probably more popular now in the wake of the, the the end of apartheid in South Africa, and of course the institution called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and as its first uh, first leader um, uh, appointed by Nelson Mandela. So the word has been popularized in our in our secular language or in our common language. Uh, but it really emanates from the Holy Bible. It is found primarily in the New Testament, primarily in Paul's letters or in the Pauline corpus, as as religious scholars would call it. Um, I I use it in lifting up, for example, um, how Paul, uh, 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 the term is used, obviously to denote salvation, as we mentioned before, the salvific origin, but it's used in a very social term. Uh, Probably the most egalitarian text in the entire Holy Bible is found in Galatians, Paul's letter to the church at Galatians, the third chapter, where Paul says, uh, uh, in the body of Christ, no longer free or slave, uh, uh, a Jew or Gentile, uh, a male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus, right? Meaning there is this great egalitarianism in the church. Uh, uh, that same egalitarianism should logically apply in society. When one thinks about the concept of reconciliation, of humans coming together from different racial or different ethnic backgrounds, I believe, just like affirmative action, it's on the chopping block now before the Supreme Court, but just like affirmative action is a social experiment, a governmental experiment in order to foster diversity, I believe God does that, too, from a divine perspective when we look at Acts 10. Uh, in the Acts 10 narrative, there is there is Peter, who is a devout Jew. Uh, uh, Peter is dreaming on a rooftop, he falls asleep, and the divine spirit uh, says, you're hungry, get up, kill, and eat, and that which Peter envisions is pork. And Peter says, this is my language, my my my, uh, my version of the Bible now, Peter says, I can't eat that ham sandwich. Are you kidding me? I'm Jewish. I can't eat that pork chop. That's unclean. And God responds by saying, how can you call profane that which I have made clean? Peter has a proverbial come to Jesus session. And Peter says, I now realize in the, in the King James version, God is no respecter of persons or in more popular versions, uh, 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 God shows no partiality among people. Peter then goes and welcomes Cornelius, who is a Gentile, uh, and welcomes him by baptizing him into the church. He says, these people love God just like we do God. Again, there's no respecter of person. I believe that is what the government has attempted to do with the institution of affirmative action. I believe one of the things that's so beautiful about institutions like NCC Law School are the diversity you see in the classroom. And I categorize diversity in the book in a twofold capacity. Uh, There is cognitive diversity, but there is also identity diversity, and I celebrate both. Cognitive diversity says that the lawyers may think a certain way. It says the accountants may think a certain way. It says the linguists may think a third way. But when you put those three groups of those three types of thinkers together at a common table, they will solve common problems much more quickly than will an otherwise uh, homogeneous group. The same applies, I lift up, for identity diversity. We lift up male, female, and we lift up black, white, and we lift up straight, gay, when we lift up north people from the north, people from the south, people from the northeast, people from the southwest, whatever the case may be, we all are influenced by our cultural histories, and if we self-identify in different ways, Baptist, Catholic, Methodist, whatever the case may be, we self-identify in different ways, and when we come together, again, we're much more likely to solve problems much more quickly. That's the humble pot, and that's an attempt to bring people to a space of reconciliation.
0: Let me, you know, just to raise talk about the, the the possibility of this uh, reconciliation, uh, looking back uh, biblically uh, to this notion of the uh, curse of Ham, uh, which is kind of undergirding uh, the uh, slavery, uh, justification and narrative, uh, the narrative uh, surrounding the uh, segregation of the uh, races and then the uh, oppression and uh, uh, efforts to keep uh, African-Americans and people of color uh, down, and that also serves to undergird the thinking of much of the uh, evangelical right when, yeah. that we have, and that basically runs uh, uh control our political establishment. And in light of all of that, and that kind of uh, holding on of that uh, tradition is reconciliation really possible in the sense that you have, uh, that you've raised
2: I would I would hope so. And I can jokingly say if my name were not Jay Augustine, it would be Jay Pollyanna because I am a perpetual optimist. Uh, as, a, as a Christian minister, I'm someone who, who lives hope. I'm someone who believes that our days can be brighter and going ahead. But there certainly is a deep-seated history, as you reference, going back with, with biblical beliefs. I would debunk them, but biblical beliefs emanating from Genesis 9 in um, uh, saying that there is a, a curse placed upon people of darker complexion, uh, that those who were descendants from the land of Canaan uh, through the migratory pattern of, of children of Israel, those who were descendants of the land of Canaan uh, were cursed to be servants uh, and to be servient. Um, uh, that foundation has partially undergirded what we would call American exceptionalism. Uh, it has partially undergirded uh, uh, many of our more modern attempts at evangelicalism. I think before I responded by saying historically evangelicals were, were very much into liberation and very much into the moral uh, uh, existence of extending rights rather than contracting rights, but it certainly has uh, undergirded the, 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 the thoughts of, of many of who we see now in the church that are leading attempts to contract rights and not extend rights to others. I'm hopeful, however, because the true diagram, if you will, uh, of reconciliation says that One group has been uh, uh, subjugated, it says the other group has been doing the subjugating. And when you think about the context of white supremacy or the narrative of white supremacy in America, that generally says that uh, those who have been emboldened with power, whites have been doing the subjugating, and Blacks have been subjugated. Well, there were reciprocal obligations for the reconciliation paradigm to work. Those reciprocal obligations would be for the group that has been doing the subjugating, there's got to be a change in behavior. They've got to be willing to walk away from the things that have perhaps boldened them in the past in order to move forward reconciliation, and it supposes that the group that has been subjugated, in this case I mean African Americans, obviously, uh, because of white supremacy, is willing to engage in forgiveness. Uh, both of those are hard. Both of those are equally hard, I would I would suggest. Uh, is it possible? I believe so. Again, there's a sense of perpetual optimism I have because I believe all human beings are made from goodness, uh, and I believe the evil and the and the divisions that we have embraced are not part of necessarily who we are, but they're part of what we have been taught. So I believe that hope uh, uh, says we can we can move away and discard the bad, and we can focus on the good. But we've got to be willing to try. So those reciprocal sides of the, of the reconciliation paradigm that I referenced, forgiveness and a willingness to change behavior, speak exactly to the paradigm of the historical paradigm that you've identified of how um, certain segments of society have perpetually sought to discriminate against others. Hopefully we all can change for the better.
1: Yeah, and that raises this question of um, when we think about, of course, the history of this country, which is steeped in in racism uh, and subjugation. Can you talk about the impact that Jim Crow and the civil rights movement and the Black liberation theology has had on
2: this movement towards civil reconciliation? Absolutely. So again, the three forms of reconciliation that I unpack in the text really go hand in hand. And just quickly to summarize again for their, their interconnectedness, salvific reconciliation, the, the vertical axis of the cross says humans are saved because of Jesus. This is unmerited. This is free grace. This is the gift that we've received. Um, it's saved through Jesus, rather. The horizontal axis of the cross says that if all means all, and if equal means equal, we are equal to one another because of Jesus. I gave the example of Galatians and speaking to Paul there in terms of social reconciliation. But then a close derivative of that is civil reconciliation, where the black church really led the way, and led the way for the church universal in the civil rights movement in speaking truth to power. Uh, When we talk about how ministers lead, from an academic perspective, in studying leadership or church leadership, we say ministers generally lead as prophets, as priests, or as kings, or to put it in non-gender-specific terms, royals, leading from the royal domain. Uh, the priest is the conciliatory leader, the one who visits the hospital, the one who buries the dead. The royal, or the king, is the one who says, this is the direction in which we're going. I've organized the church budget. I'm working on the church calendar. Follow me. This is the way we're going. But the prophet. The prophetic leadership is what we saw during the Civil Rights Movement with that willingness to speak truth to institutions of power. Uh, that that narrative or that model has been uh, uh, lifted up and heralded time and time again throughout the biblical canon. It certainly was embodied uh, and manifest through the leadership of Martin King and many other social justice-oriented ministers who understood reconciliation during the course of the American Civil Rights Movement. I would personally say And, Irv, I'm so thankful you mentioned some of those who have endorsed my work. One of the endorsements on the back is a personal hero of mine, somebody who you've worked very closely with, obviously, in North Carolina. And that's the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II. He would be, I would argue, our current manifestation of the most visible prophetic leader, someone who is literally taking on institutional powers and calling them to task to, to extend equality and justice to all. So... The civil reconciliation that we saw in the civil rights movement is continuing. Uh, it's continuing through people like Dr. Barber now in the religious context, but it also continued in a in a secular context, I would argue, undergirded by morality, but in a very secular context through the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, these were people who, again, followed a playbook. They followed a a, a success, successful model of, of public protest and prophetic protest, I would call it. Uh, that was that was exemplified during the civil rights movement, but they did the exact same things in terms of organizing and, and taking on institutions, uh, uh, obviously for what we saw and what I will call the other pandemic of racism perpetuated in violence, like we had not seen in a very very long time, particularly during the course of 2020. So civil reconciliation is alive and well. Uh, uh, his truth is marching on, to sort of paraphrase the battle hymn of the republic. Uh,
0: this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and. Uh... We are talking with uh, Professor and Dr. Reverend uh, J. Augustine uh, about his uh, book, All to Reconciliation, How the Church Can Model Justice, Diversity, and uh, Inclusion. And uh, we're getting a, uh, an education uh, in the, uh, the history of the Bible. Now it has been used uh, both for and against us uh, moving to the through our uh, history. Uh, but right now, we're going to have to take uh, a break. want you to uh, stay with us uh, as uh, we return to uh, continue this uh, conversation that we have. So we'll be right back.
4: Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I am currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in Civil Rights and Constitutional Law, Dispute Resolution, Tax Law, or Justice in the Practice of Law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation, completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening.
0: Okay, we're back and thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue this uh, great conversation with uh, Dr. Augustine about uh, his book. Uh, He is an attorney, minister, civil rights uh, activist, a lot of background and experience and has spent a lot of time in researching and uh, authoring this uh, this treatise on uh, reconciliation and justice, uh, diversity, and uh, inclusion. Um, you you, you talked about the uh, definition of uh, reconciliation and its possibility of uh, moving uh, forward. Um, and the suggestion in your book is that without justice, without diversity, without inclusion, there cannot be this uh, this reconciliation, yet in the uh, legal world or in the world as uh, people know it, uh, they are encountering wholesale problems uh, with each. Uh, the injustices that people are experiencing, uh, the absence of uh, diversity and inclusion uh, in many uh, sectors of our uh, community and environment, uh, things that uh, at the top, of anguish and anxiety on the part of uh, many people. How how can people overcome that sense of absence of the very things that you say are necessary ingredients in order to have this reconciliation?
2: Yeah, and I love the term ingredients because again, that takes me uh, in a in a in a foodie context uh, to New Orleans and how the book begins uh, with my analogy of gumbo. Um, Gumbo is not soup, right? It's it's not broth. It's not plain. It's not a homogenous blend. It is it is it's different substances, different, different ingredients, uh, uh, people from different backgrounds, put it in human terminology, coming together to make something that's special. There's always diversity. Uh, there is diversity on the campus of an HBCU, even though it's primarily an African-American context. There's great diversity because people come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. People come from different geographic backgrounds. The social experiences of an African-American from California, as I'm sure April will lift up, may be different than the social experiences of an African-American who grew up in Washington, D.C. But when you come together in a classroom and you experience something in common, you learn so much from each other because your perspectives will be different based on your, your individual experiences. So I think, number one, there is something to be said about respecting that which is unlike you, respecting the proverbial other with a capital O, Uh, someone who may be from a different ethnic background, someone who may be from a different gender background, someone who may be from a different racial background, whatever the case may be, but respecting that which is different from you uh, and recognizing that from, from, I'm going to put on the minister's hat for a minute, we all are God's children, right? So part of human equality and part of respecting the beauty of God's creation, part of respecting the chef's gumbo uh, says that all of these ingredients are special, and all of these ingredients come together to make something that is that is special and unique when it's in combination uh, with the other substances or with the other ingredients, to go back to the word that you so appropriately used in the onset of the question. So I'm sharing that to say so many of our institutions now, um, we, we've, been, we've been molded politically over the course of the last four years, or the last six years in particular, since the 2016 uh, presidential campaign. We've been molded by language of enmity, language of division, and language of silos, where we should be in isolation. Uh, We've been molded by language that vilifies that other with the capital O, where where, uh, uh, Mexicans are murderers, rapists, drug dealers, uh, uh, where people of of, of different uh, gender, uh, 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 gender backgrounds. The, the proverbial other should be vilified. And that is, that is completely wrong. To me, that's completely against the human spirit. That completely defies uh, uh, the, the the beauty of the gumbo or the, or the necessity of God creating different folks and putting them in the community with one another. So I think the most important thing is for us all to be able to take a step back and recognize that all of us are created in God's image. All of us have beauty in our own separate ways. All of us are diverse from one another if we're willing to look for what diversity really means and to celebrate that diversity from both the cognitive perspectives when you talk about academic discipline training and the identity perspective to talk about who we fundamentally are. When we come together, we're like a gumbo, and We create something that's special. And I think the most important fundamental thing to answer your question, Irv, is that we all have got to be willing to recognize somebody else has beauty just like we have to be, and be able to appreciate what that beauty is.
1: Yeah, one of the things I love about your book is – the history in it and how um, your impressions of today are formed based on the history of this country. And we're at a moment in time right now where there is the concerted effort to not just ignore history, but to hide it. And as you talk about the need for reconciliation and you talked about how those that were doing the subjugating have to take steps and acknowledge it and and to be willing to cease that behavior. And those that are being subjugated have to be willing to um, forgive. How do we in this moment where there is extreme pushback to even acknowledge what has happened and what is continuing to happen, how do we take, affirmative steps to get to the point of reconciliation.
2: Yeah, and it's it's incredible because society now is using soundbite wedge issues to cause major division and the, and the wedge issues are usually so inaccurate for what they're being portrayed to be. And I will just lift up the acronym that everybody's been calling and the acronym that caused the Virginia gubernatorial election to tilt in one direction and tilt against the other direction, and that is CRT, right? Now, now, <clears throat> I know, as you know, as we know, we studied critical race theory in law school and we understand what it is, we understand what it's not. And that which is being dropped as a soundbite wedge issue in society, I'm like, what? Okay, that's it's much more complex than that. What you, whatever you just said, that's not it. I know that's not it, right? Because I spent a semester of my life immersed in that, so I know that's not it. But but I think it takes a, a desire to be a little bit more sophisticated than just to listen to the soundbites because people are giving us inaccurate information simply to create wedge issues. Um, uh, It takes a willingness to recognize that the history of America says we did not begin at 1776. This was not a a fully equal starting point for everybody. Uh, The history of America says there was an incredible narrative of white supremacy going back to 1619 when the first slaves came to the state came to the the United States, I should say, or what became the United States, and obviously was subjugated in a major, major, major way. Well, if we want to call upon the descendants of those slaves who have not received reparations, notwithstanding, as we all know, Japanese Americans, every lawyer knows the case Korematsu. We understand what happened with Japanese internment camps. We understand that the federal government paid reparations to Japanese Americans. Yes, they did. For those listeners out yes, they did. We understand that a promise was made for... 40 acres in a mew Spike Lee's film company lifted that up. Everybody, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. Yes, yes, it did. Yes, the government did make that promise. But in 1877, after the contested 1876 presidential election, when the deal was made uh, uh, to, to save the union, if you will, when the troops were withdrawn from the South in 1877, all H-E-L-L broke loose. You saw white vigilantism. You saw mob rule. You saw violence again perpetuated against the group that has been subjugated, uh, or that was subjugated from 1619, right? So I'm saying all that to say, and, a, and that's a quick sound bite of history, to say that African Americans collectively are being called on to forgive, to engage in the business of forgiveness, to just wipe the slate clean. Okay, that's a lot. That's a lot. But I believe as a Christian minister, we can do that if, on the other side, you who has been doing the subjugating is willing to acknowledge that subjugation and is willing to have a change in behavior. If we are not reciprocally on opposite sides of the coin and opposite sides of the power dynamic, and it extends—I'm—I'm I'm using it in the classic context of black-white, but it extends obviously to any group that has been dominant and another group that has been subjugated. The power dynamics of gender in the workplace—the list goes on and on and on—in terms of how you can how you can contextualize it or categorize it. But but if, if going back to the context of race, if African American being asked to forgive and to come whole to the table, that means uh, 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 the other, the dominant class has got to be willing to acknowledge and not unwrite or rewrite, not try to erase history, uh, but has got to be willing to acknowledge history and has got to be willing to say there will be a change in behavior going forward. That's hard work on both sides, but that's really what the reconciliation paradigm is about and that's why reconciliation is so necessary. It's not easy. It's hard work. It's not for the faint of heart. But it's the only way I believe our society truly, truly, truly live out these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal. That's the only way to get to that point.
0: You know, your 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 explanation or your comments uh, there uh, reminded me of, of the song. Uh, Jesus uh, has uh, brought out the uh, best in me.
2: Yes. Uh, yes. But, yes. Uh,
0: but Donald Trump has brought out the worst in them. Breach, breach breacher. Uh, <laughs> breach, uh, breach how,
2: how, how
0: how How do we get past this constant injection of this uh, negativism going back to the curse of Ham that keeps popping up on the other side where despite your best effort to develop a, an African-American uh, acceptance of what has happened historically, that there doesn't seem to be the same willingness and openness on the uh, other side? What is it that that you can do uh, as uh, the author of this text or the minister uh, to get to that side of the corn uh, to produce that result?
2: So one of the things I certainly lift up in a uh, solution-oriented context is to talk, I talk about building community with others, and I give some personal examples. Um, I pastored, as I shared, uh, a predominantly African-American church, the oldest, a predominantly Black church in the city of New Orleans, the church, St. James, being the church before being assigned to St. Joseph's Bureau. Um, uh, I was very deliberate in working with a white pastor, a dear friend of mine. I call him my brother from another mother, uh, Andrew Greenhoff who at the time, Andrew's serving in the Midwest now, but at the time he was serving a primarily white church, St. Paul's uh, United Church of Christ in uptown New Orleans. And we were very deliberate in doing a pulpit exchange uh, in bringing choirs to, to our respective congregation, a, a choir I, I served with at Historic St. James, went over to St. Paul's, his choir from St. Paul's came over to Historic St. James, uh, and, and we experienced worship in a different context. And then eyes start to open, wow. And you go in many regards to the to the Acts 10 narrative of saying, I now realize God is no respecter of persons because these people, although they look different based on the social construct of race, although I recognize that some immutable characteristics are different, we really are very much the same. Uh, uh, you start to enjoy one another. You start to, to live in community with one another. And then because I am a son of the South and I believe food is a, is a unifying force that can bring people together. When you have table fellowship, you just have the opportunity to have a common meal and just to talk. I believe you can take it down a notch and I believe you can debunk much of the myths and the deliberate misinformation. I think they call it fake news in some regards, right? Much, much of the misinformation that's put out into the public domain as is wedge issues, there is a personal ability to debunk that stuff. Uh, but it starts with a willingness to engage in community and a willingness to share. And part of that is a willingness to be vulnerable, to own the narrative of where you have been. Uh, uh, through that table fellowship, examples and plural, table fellowships, I have enjoyed. Um, I've, I've had some some folks who did not look like me to say, well, yes, I heard my mother use the N-word. <gasps> my grandfather used to own slaves. The great-grandfather owned slaves. <laughs> this is what we were taught. Wow. He was in the Confederate Army. and We still have Robert E. Lee in the backyard. Wow. And you're like, this this is in the in a book I'm reading. I'm sitting across the table from this person. Wow. But then when you're willing to own it, to be vulnerable, to address it, you can debunk it and you can put it aside and you can focus on the commonality of what we share as human beings. That is the hard work of forgiveness and in a, a reciprocal change in behavior, a willingness to change in behavior that moves us all toward reconciliation. It also, Irv, I think, leads to a recognition, uh, as the as the old news saying goes, "If it leads, it bleeds." Right. So, so the worst stuff is going to be front page news. The worst stuff is what's going to lead the news stories because it. Gets people's attention because it causes advertising dollars to come in because we we become infatuated with that stuff and we want to listen to it more. Donald Trump gave us the worst stuff for the four years of his presidency. He gave us the absolute worst, and in part of the nation that we thought was sleep, we thought that went away, were unearthed, that came to 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 bring out enmity, hate, and resistance in ways that we had not seen uh, uh, for at least a generation. Um, uh, And now that that population is up, they're here. They've been identified. They're drinking coffee. They're not drinking wine to go back to sleep. They're drinking coffee. They're up and energized. So what do we do with them? They're human beings, too. Again, I go back to the paradigm. It's hard work to engage in forgiveness. It's hard, hard work. Once you roll a videotape to look at some of the folks we saw outside the Capitol, like, hey, I saw that guy. I saw that guy. It's hard work to engage in forgiveness, but it's necessary. It, just like it's equally necessary on the part of that guy who was at the Capitol or that gal who was at the Capitol, it's hard work for them to 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 have a real change in behavior and ownership of things past. So this is not for the faint of heart. If we're going to make America better, it's going to take some very deliberate effort on both sides of the political aisle, on both sides of the of the reconciliation coin. Uh, uh, but but I want to appeal to our better angels and not to our darker days.
1: You know, um it was uh, I appreciate you sharing your working with um uh, when you were in New Orleans with uh, your fellow pastor uh, of the white church and and we have seen throughout history that those of faith have there have always been those of faith in the white community who have been supportive of of equality. Um, but we've also seen the opposite those that you know profess faith uh, being the supporters. Um, And and those that want to continue to see the the subjugation. And um, what are your thoughts about, um, you mentioned the Christian nationalism, and you mentioned the evangelicals, and, and we know that there are those that are progressive, who are white and who are of faith. Um, but what are your thoughts about those in the evangelical community in the Christian nationalist um, space? Are you seeing movement there where there is a willingness to acknowledge and cease the behavior that is harmful um, so that we can move towards reconciliation?
2: Yeah, so what a what a profound question. I want to answer that to say yes and not yet. and And yes, in the regard for those who have been, uh, white evangelicals, those who have been in much, much more conservative spaces, there are some. You know that just because we may disagree, we don't have to be disagreeable. So I may not dis- I may not agree with all of the stuff, the fundamental conservatism that some of some of our white evangelical brothers and sisters have in religion and some of the foundational things that 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 they believe are important. I may not regard those things as important. Uh. Uh. uh but but I'm seeing a a true willingness on the part of evangelicals to recognize, okay, we have come. It's not where we started. So so we need to regroup. And I am personally encouraged. Again, I thank you all for lifting up my book, Call to Reconciliation, because I'm personally encouraged that I've been invited to give a talk on Call to Reconciliation in October at a large gathering of white evangelical ministers in Chicago. Um, uh, it is called CPT, the Center for Pastor Theologians, mm-hmm. a very conservative group. Uh, which is recognized. Hey, this is not where we started. I don't know how we got to this place, but we need to be very deliberate. And the conference theme is deconstructing evangelicalism. I'm just going to let that sink in for a moment, right? So they want to they want to be very deliberate and say, okay, this is not where we are supposed to be. There's no reason that we we have to have this sort of enmity and this sort of violence and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm certainly encouraged by that. That's the Pollyanna in me coming out again, right? I'm certainly encouraged by that. Um, uh, the other part of the question, I said not yet. Because in terms of Christian nationalists, uh, I think we as a country have got to do a little bit more uh, uh, education. I think we've got to do a little bit more to unpack the complexities of how Christian nationalism has undergirded so much of our foundational structure. And it's it's interesting. I can, I can call it out because I am a patriot for the United States of America. I am. I'm a former infantry lieutenant in the United States Army. I used to jump out of planes, rappel out of choppers. I'm airborne. Ooh, all of that good stuff, right? I am also a Christian minister, but I don't conflate the two. I I, I don't conflate the two to say that America is a chosen nation. The hand of God is on America to the exclusion of others, because just like I do believe the hand of God is on America, well, I believe the hand of God is on Canada. I believe the hand of God is on Mexico. to talk about the North American continent. I believe the hand of God is on all of us because we all are God's children. So I have not been moved by an exceptionalism. I've not been moved to displace others that, is, that are indigenous to the lands by, by manifest destiny. Um, uh, I've not been emboldened such that Christian nationalism is a part of who I am that says, uh, I want to fly a flag or I want to wear a T-shirt that says, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. I bet you I don't. I bet you I don't wear that T-shirt. I bet you I won't because I'm not going to conflate those issues. But there's a reason that so many people who Our faithful Christians and people who love America have conflated those issues, and I think we've got to do some more psychoanalysis and more education and some deeper understanding to unpack those issues. So I do believe one day we will get there where we can collectively call out Christian nationalism for the problem it is and see how it's exclusionary and see how it seeks to preserve the status quo in many ways rather than being welcoming uh, uh, to others. Uh, But I don't think as a country we are there yet. I do think Donald Trump helped to expedite a a typical conservative evangelical saying, wait, 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 this is not what we signed up for. This ship has run amok. We need a new captain. So let's have, you know, a conference, let's have multiple conferences to talk about how we right the wrongs of where we pivoted, particularly over the course of the last 40 or 50 years. Uh, during the Jerry Falwell, the, the, the religious right, and now how things have just come to a catapult uh, the make America great again narrative. So I am optimistic is what I'm saying. I very much am optimistic.
1: Well, excellent. Well, we'll have to have you back um, so you can give us an update of, of where we are with that progression. And we just can't thank you enough for writing this very timely and necessary book that will help move us all towards the reconciliation that we need in this country. Um, unfortunately, we are out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, Reverend, Dr. Attorney, Professor Jay Augustine. He is the senior pastor at the historic St. Joseph AME Church here in Durham. And he is the author of a recently published book, Call to Reconciliation, How the Church Can Model Justice, Diversity, and Inclusion. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for joining us this evening. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever missed this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, Stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.